You're listening to the Cycling Podcast Femina. Well, hello and welcome to this, the June edition of the Cycling Podcast Feminine. And I'm going to have to almost tear my two contributors, my two co-hosts away from each other because we've been having a cat versus dog <laughs> battle in the dog corner, all a shenoey. <laughs> and in the cat corner, Lizzie Banks. Hello, everyone. <laughs> hello, hello. No, I should be say that we are joined by your magnificent um, pets, what I call Lizzie's podcats, or maybe one podcat or two. Oh, oh very, very good. good, very good. <laughs> I know. I, I should have. I should have done that more naturally, as opposed to setting it up like that. But um, you've got one or two cats, haven't you? No, two cats. I've got two cats. Actually, I would say the one that I can see is Marcus, but Delia is actually the podcat. She's been on quite a few podcasts, meowing in the background. So. You probably know her voice. And obviously all has got lovely Bella, who um, Lizzie absolutely hates, apparently. No, no, that, no that, that's Having not true. Having never met her, poor Bella. I, I actually love all animals. I love dogs. I love. I just really, really love cats. Um, I was just surprised to find out that Orla had uh, purchased a dog um, when she has such a busy life already and her kids are not old enough to walk them herself. But um yeah, but that's like it, it wasn't an anti dog thing. It was more it was more an anti life decision thing. It yeah. was more Lizzie Lizzie saying, What on earth are you thinking about getting a dog? And in my defence, I haven't got a dog. i I was bullied into it. I was pressured into it by my eight year old daughter and my husband, none of whom have been around for the past week to walk the dog, feed the dog. My daughter's been here, obviously. Like, she's not moved out. She's only eight. But uh, my husband has been off on holiday for a week, leaving me responsible for all domestic living creatures. And um, Eva's decided that this is her time to have play dates because the summer has arrived. And so no one has helped me look after the dog. So I agree with, with Lizzie to a certain extent. However, the really, really annoying thing, and especially annoying for me because I am traditionally quite not anti-dog but certainly be very scared of dogs the really annoying thing is Bella is absolutely beautiful and she and and she has worked out exactly how I tick and is the only creature in this house to give me unconditional love so she's already my favorite so everyone else can go do one it's me and Bella <laughs> well are there many other successful women in the cycling industry make it work Flirty Mackay has a gorgeous poodle who we met uh, at Pyro Bay, Lotta Kapeki has a lovely dog and a lovely cat as well. So, uh, so you're not alone, Orla, in uh, being successful. Helena Shakini also has a um, pug. I think I don't know my dog. I'm not. I'm not a dog. I think I don't, is it a pug or is it a bulldog? I think it's a bulldog. Uh, maybe it's, it's a, maybe it's a bulldog and maybe uh, Chantal Vanderbrand Black has a pug. Should we, I feel like we've got a we've got a breakaway episode here? Yeah, on, dogs of the peloton. On, yeah, <laughs> yeah, dogs of you the peloton. You make the dogs of the peloton, Ola. I'll make the cats of the peloton. Perfect. I mean, I'm I'm quite sure there's a massive demand. I think it would be more interesting for Lizzie to interview all these uh, all the people dogs. and their life choices. <laughs> I can do I can do an interview with Bella for the next episode if you like. Evita Music is going to fe- feature heavily in my uh, in my podcast because she's got a beautiful Norwegian forest cat. And she lives pretty close to me as well. So, anyway, shall we move well, on? Anyway, before we, well, exactly. Before we do too much pre-production for our new dogs and cats, pets of the peloton. Um, you're, on a, you're on a roll. 
Maybe we should uh, talk a bit about the racing that's been happening. Orla, do you want to roll us off with your uh, news roundup, please? Let's do that, shall we? Um, there's actually only been one women's world tour race since our last episode, but there's been plenty of news all the same. We've had the Tour de Suisse, and that is the uh, race I'm talking about. It was won overall by Marlon Rosser of SD Works for her second GC win of the year following her overall in May at Itzulia Woman. She also took the Stage 2 time trial with another two SD Works stage winners and in what continues to be an ominous and no doubt maddeningly frustrating situation for the rest of the pellets. And the other two are first-time winners on the Women's World Tour. So SD Works expand their roster of winners again. Blanca Vast was, um, has already proven her credentials in cyclocross and mountain bike, the Hungarian road race champion. She took the Stage 1 sprint with Neve Fisher-Black winning stage four. Um, two riders as well, I always get surprised by some riders who you realise have only just won their first World Tour race. Because we talk about them so much, I assume they'd won already, but they, that was their first uh, wins. And the other winner at the Tour de Suisse was another first-timer. The sprint on stage three was taken by Eleonora Gasparini of UAE ADQ, a phenomenal show of strength by the 21-year-old Italian in that finale. And we do have to give a mention to a few other riders in that race as well. Elise Shabby, Erska Ziegart and Cassia Nevia Doma. Shabby, first of all, on stage one, Canyon Tram rider, of course, back from injury. She said she wanted to make herself suffer and suffer she did. On stage one, she went on a solo ride for most of the 56 kilometres. On stage three, it was Ziegart who was the lone attacker. She was caught in the final 100 metres. You couldn't quite tell how far she was from the finish from the overhead, but I think it was even the final 50 metres. It was just heartbreaking. A brilliant, brilliant, brilliant ride from her, but just didn't have the legs to make it to the end. And another notable mention for Cassia Nevia Doma. She's chasing still her first win since 2019 put in a huge turn on stage four to lose out in a tee-up sprint, doing really the lion's share of the work there. So heartbreak for her, which sounds unfair to say when you finish second in a women's world tour race, but she could reasonably have expected to take that stage win, which went to Neve Fisher-Black. So the overall win, as I say, taken then by Marlon Rosser, the Swiss rider and a very difficult win, I think, for her and a very difficult difficult race for the entire Pelton and especially the Swiss riders because, of course, the cycling world lost Gino Mader just before the race got underway, which was a tragic, tragic loss of such a brilliant, young, engaged, talented rider who's so hugely missed across the men's, of course, but also the women's Peloton and the wider cycling family. And I know we would all want to send our love, our best respects, our best wishes to everyone who knew and loved and rode with Gino because he was an exceptional young rider and, a, and an exceptional young man by all accounts. Um, fitting, I guess, then that Marlon Royster took that stage win, that overall win. Yeah, I mean, Marlon Royster even said, you know, that she dreamed of this uh, win, but, you know, she had Gino in her mind also um, being a fellow Swiss rider so it's a real um, poignant moment for her and you know the, the way in which she went about it in front of some huge Swiss crowds I have to say I mean the Tour de Suisse has been growing in in uh, momentum and in popularity year on year and um, it was amazing to see such a, a huge amount of uh, love and support um, 
you know, supporting uh, their compatriots and supporting uh, the other Swiss cyclists. Uh, and as you say, all our, you know, our hearts go out to um, Gino's family and his friends and um, and his team. And it, it's just, a, a, you know, a stark reminder, isn't it? But, you know, how much the riders put on the line for us to sit around and enjoy, you know, dissecting the races and enjoying the spectacle and re- relishing the races, you know, how much they um, they put on the line, don't they? Um, Lizzie, some you know, on from a racing perspective, the Tour de Suisse, uh, it really delivered, didn't it? Although, again, like we seem to have said every single month, SD Works winning overall and um, you know, winning three out of four stages um, doesn't quite sound like the most exciting racing, but the way it was done um, was riveting, wasn't it? Yeah, we're a broken record saying, although they won, please watch the races <laughs> because it was really interesting, but it was, it, it, it really was. And you know, Elise went out on on stage one, and as you said, Orla, she said she wanted to make herself suffer. And you know, in light of the tragic circumstances surrounding Gina Maida's death, I think that it's easiest to just go hard, don't think. And that's what she did. She was away for pretty much the whole of that stage, which is about fifty kilometers, getting caught in the final there. Um, but it was it was a great race to watch, and um, she was incredibly strong. We didn't know if she'd stay away. Uh, she then had to do another time trial the next day. It was interesting to see that that Kashi Nibiodoma, who was so strong on the fourth stage, actually had a, a pretty bad day, she said, on, on the second stage, which was the time trial. You wouldn't expect her to be right up there on a time trial. It's not, her, you know, her favorite discipline. She doesn't spend a lot of time on the time trial bike. Um, but after the interview, the interview at the end of the, the tour, she said that actually she just had a bad day. But I think that it's really exciting because she is looking... The strongest that she's been this year, she was a little bit off color in the spring. And then in the May races, she was, you know, getting back into her her rhythm. By the end of the May races, she was really beginning to look strong. And and here in the Tour de Suisse, apart from that one off day in the time trial, um, which maybe because it's not her speciality, like she, she was actually looking really good. And Nia Fisher-Black was having to kill herself just to stay on the wheel and and I think that in the final, she made a little bit of a tactical error. It was very difficult because she had Marlon Rosa closing the gap from behind. Um, Nivia Doma was trying to catapult herself onto the podium and actually only ended second, seven, ended up seven seconds away from the podium. So it was a remarkable result, really. Um, but I think in the final kilometer, she could have, you know, she could have looked around, seen that Marlon Rosa wasn't in sight, had a little moment to just sort of catch her breath, let that lactic acid flow out a little bit, let the heart rate drop a little bit, see if she could force Neve Fisher-Black into the first position and try and get her to go early, knowing that Neve would have wanted her first pro win. Um, but instead she sort of... I did, I did wonder that actually, Lizzie, because when I was watching it, obviously the, the gap between Nevia Doma and Marlon Royce at the start of the day on the GC was about, you know, over two minutes. So once it had come right down the gap, I mean, we know that uh, Royce only finished 37 seconds down. What the motivation between getting, trying to go for third place overall versus going for a stage win? Where would you sit on motivation? Because for me, as you know, um, uh, as an outsider from being a pro athlete, I would always want to just go for the win. <laughs> I'm a total glory under. But for me, getting third on GC wouldn't be as valuable. But you know, in terms of points, in terms of as an athlete, is that more valuable? Was the opportunity to maybe get third more valuable than um, 
getting stage win? Because obviously at that point she was then racing Longo Borghini, wasn't she? Because Longo Borghini came third overall. So really it was a race between Cashini Doma and Longo Borghini more than it was against Cashini Doma and Marlon Royster. That's the second thing. The fact that Marlon Royster was in the gap was kind of kind of irrelevant to some points. But then also once Marlon Royster was in the gap, then if Cashini Doma also wanted to win the stage, then she's got to worry about Royster coming from behind because we know how strong Royster is. And if Royster caught um, Fisher Black and Nibiodoma, then there's every chance that she would just go straight past her and also take the stage win. So then you get to this point where at the beginning you're thinking, okay, I'm going to try and catapult myself onto the onto the GC. And well, I'm sure she was hoping that Fisher Black wouldn't come with her. And then even so, she tried to drop her in the downhills. She tried to drop her in the uphills. And she did make a number of gaps to Fisher Black, but Fisher Black always got back on the wheel. And obviously having that advantage of not having to hit the wind for pretty much 50 kilometers. Um, Fisher Black said herself after the race that she was in a very privileged position having her teammates behind. So I would say that um, that the win would be more prestigious, especially as we know that Nivea Doma sort of needs to shake this no win since 2019 sort of yeah, conversation, whatever, off of her back. And I think that that would be really helpful. But it was just a situation where it was kind of lose-lose she had to be pushing to try and get the the you know the time to to Longo Borghini who was the only one chasing in the peloton behind yet if she didn't keep pushing and and thought about that sprint then Royce was just going to catch her and go straight past so um yeah difficult I mean if she'd have ended up with either the third place or the win then she'd have ended up on the podium but in the end she ended up with neither but I think that we should commend the way she rode because it was courageous um, and it was like the cashier of old that we've, we've seen before. Um, but yeah, looking ahead- and also, we, I mean, I was just going to say there that, you know, is this not all of, do you think we, you know, we said it's ominous that obviously SC works did come away with, you know, so many wins from this race, but, um, is this not that we're kind of finding the key to unlocking SD works is, uh, the chink in their armour, as it were, because it seems like if you can manage to get away early, if you can manage to surprise them, um, you know, with a breakaway, that's the only way really of beating SC Works. I mean, they'll be vindicated because they won regardless, but it was pretty close with with Gigard. It was pretty close with, with Chabet. It was pretty close with um, Nivea Doma. It seems like, you know, maybe they're for a team that is so in control, maybe they can be caught napping. I mean, we saw it in Vuelta Femenina, you know, with the whole controversy about the wee breaks and whatever, but maybe they can be caught napping. Maybe that's the only way of beating SD Works. I don't really know if there is a way to beat them as such with a strategy, you know, and I, and I mean that in, a, in the way that there is no key, I don't think. You've just got to keep racing your own race. And that's what I really liked about what Cassia Neviodoma was doing. She was racing as she races. And as you were alluding to there, Lizzie, it's almost like the cashier of old. There was fire in her belly. There was passion in her belly. And maybe yet she could have done the finale a little bit more strategically. But I don't think you're going to win by trying to beat SD Works because they have too many cards to play in too many scenarios. And their roster of winners is just getting bigger. You've just got to race the way you're going to race. And I actually think with Cashier, I do hope that somewhat now her pressure is going to lift a little bit because, as you were saying, Lizzie, she needs to shake this no win since 2019. But the team have had to shake that as well. And they finally now have a winner. And it's not Cassia, which may be a little bit disappointing for her, but also it means that not everything is, is 
falling to her and not everything is resting on her shoulders anymore. The team have had a win. Chloe Dygart can win and, and is doing amazingly well. And maybe that gives Cassie Navia Doma a little bit more freedom now to race the way she wants to race. And you've got to feel, and I, and I know we've been saying this for a couple of seasons now with absolute conviction that her win will come because it does feel like it's only, you know, a couple of hundred metres away even, depending on how a race plays out. But I, I genuinely don't believe that any team is going to beat SD Works by working out how to beat SD Works. They can only win by riding their own race and, and whatever way the, the cards fall in any given day, wins will come because wins do come because they're not winning absolutely everything. But I don't think there's any merit to any team thinking how we're going to beat SD Works because you would drive yourself insane and then you ride according to what your strategy was rather than how you feel on the day. And you just don't know how any of the other riders are going to feel in the day. So I just don't think that um, that that's a way to play it, really. Not that anything else is necessarily working so far, but sometimes it does. <laughs> it's a mental thing as well. Like They're, they're not infallible. It was an incredibly hot yeah. race at, at Tour de Suisse. And, and Demi Vollering, to, to give her all her credit, she worked very, very hard for Marlon Royser. But it's interesting because we, you know, we never see Demi Vollering working, do we? Normally, because she's normally the protected rider, and so it was interesting to see her suffer, um, and it was actually quite reassuring to see her suffer. And it's this mental game where you have to remember that everybody is breakable, and you know, you're sort of only as good as you believe that you are. And if you want to win, you have to believe it. And I do think there's this problem where, you know, we've talked about this before, the Van der Breggen effect is now becoming the Vollering effect or the SD Works effect. If you just think, oh yeah, well, they're going to win, then you're not going to win. You have to believe that you can do it. And you say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do it. And there will be a point when the other riders will crack, whether it's due to fatigue, heat, whatever it is, or tactical advantage. Um, so I think it's just that mental game and it's really difficult for all of the teams who've obviously just been getting their heads kicked in the whole season. You know, even after the even after the first stage, Elise said, um, Elise Chabet said, you know, well, SD worked one again. Um, so you can kind of see this uh, like frustrated desperation. Uh, you know, they're kind of sick of this situation, but but they are still trying. And I think that's the main thing. And there will there will come a time when they will be cracked. Um yeah. And I think we'll see it in the Giro. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh man, we'll get to the Giro a little bit later. There's a lot to talk about there. The cycling podcast Femina is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you to Science in Sport, sponsors of the cycling podcast. You can find all of your sports nutrition wants over on the Science in Sport website, including a brand new range of protein bars. These can be a great and far less messy alternative to protein shakes. They can help top up your energy after a long day on the bike or just fill in as a healthier alternative to a chocolate bar. Science in Sport have four delicious flavours to choose from. And when I say delicious, I really mean it. Get a load of this white chocolate fudge, milk chocolate and peanut, cookies and cream or dark chocolate and raspberry. How can you resist that? Head over to find them and all of your other sports nutrition needs at scienceinsport.com. Um, but I'll get back to um, other racing news because a uh, brief mention of the Lotto Belgium Tour, which was cancelled because of a lack of municipal support, meaning they couldn't afford to stage the race. The Dwarves Door Domestic did go ahead and we saw a full team podium lockout and it was a SD Works. 
Go ahead, Lizzie. Can I just mention the reason that DSM had one, two, three on the podium for Drasdor de Vestuk was actually because of a crash, which meant that the three of them got a gap, um, which is a little bit frustrating because my teammates, Letizia Borghese and Alison Jackson, were very good in that race. Um, and the gap for the, for the front three uh, from DSM was actually caused by a crash. FYI. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And this is the thing when it comes to racing, the results only ever tell you a fraction of the story of the race anyway, luckily, because that's why you all maybe hopefully tune in to get a bit of the backstory. But we haven't even mentioned who those three winners were or the three podium finishers. The win went to Pfeiffer Georgie with Leia Carinier taking second and Charlotte Cole in third. Um, now, in other brief news, the Canyon Shram rider Shari Bossout has tested positive for letrozole. She's been suspended by her team. She returned a positive test in an anti-doping control during the Tour de Normandie Femina in March. The substance, which I must confess I hadn't heard of before, is a hormone drug used more generally to treat breast cancer, but it is on the World Anti-Doping Agency's prohibited list. Bossout has said that she has never consciously used the drug she believes her sample was contaminated, but Canyon Shram said that they have a zero tolerance stance towards any use of prohibited substances and that it made uh, Bossack provisionally non-active, effectively suspending her. Now, I say that I hadn't heard of the drug, but I had forgotten the name of it because it did come into the news last year after another Belgian cyclist, Tone Arts, tested positive. The cyclocross rider had returned an out-of-competition sample with the banned substance in January of last year. He's still out of racing. Um, it's believed he could be facing a two-year suspension. But he issued a statement after Bossout's positive saying, we are one year on, I'm still deep in misery and unfortunately there is another case. I can imagine so well what Shari is going through now. This shouldn't happen. Another athlete who's also human who will go through a deep valley with her whole family without having done anything wrong, just like me and my family. Um, he said, no two without three, as the saying goes, and I fear there will be more victims. So Art's claiming himself to be a victim and Bossart to be a victim as well. Um, now, if uh, she is suspended, it would rule her out of defending her Madison World title, which she holds with Lotte Kopecky at the Worlds in August. So we're still awaiting a full decision um, from the anti-doping agencies about that. Um, Elisa Balsamo has had surgery for jaw fractures, which she suffered in her crash in stage one of the Royal London Classic. We don't know anything yet about her recovery or certainly a time frame of recovery or her return to training or competition. And then I have saved the most disastrous for last um, because we referenced it earlier but we had Sagarama at the Tour de Pyrénées. Um, I'll mention the results first of all, because stage one was taken by Ashley Millman Passio. And on stage two, Marta Cavalli returning to winning form after her horror crash at the Tour de France Feminin last year. Tour de France Femme, sorry. Um, and so Marta won the GC overall. Now, unfortunately, this is one of these races that made much wider news headlines because of what was happening around the racing and that was essentially an awful lot of traffic was happening around the racing. Um, first stage was into Lourdes and we saw members of the public driving in the course metres away from the riders. Um, there was a coach travelling in the opposite direction towards a speeding peloton on narrow roads. Cars nearly pulled out into the path of riders, motorbikes, pedestrians 
other road users coming dangerously close to the competitors, as well as parked cars and trucks in the final kilometers. Stage two was slightly better, um, but still, slightly uh, less worse. Second I think stage is, was, uh... so, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a much better way of describing it. Actually, a less worse stage to the Hotakam. Uh, racing was neutralized to the foot of the climb, um, with riders complaining again about dangerous conditions. And then they took a vote through the women's arm of the CPA and uh, the riders' union. Of course, seventeen of the twenty-three teams decided the race was too dangerous to continue, and the third and final stage was cancelled. All of that's bad enough. All of that is bad enough. Enter stage left, race director Pascal Baudron, who, in a statement regarding all of this, um, said, and I'm going to read this in full because I think it's worth it, or rather not worth it. If you're prone to anger, maybe um, cover your ears and make the la-la-la noise until I'm finished. Baudron said, uh, translated from French, of course, the girls have demands that are not in line with their level. Um, the level being that of Ashley Milman Passio and Marta Cavalli, of course. Let's put this into context. They imagine that they are on the Tour de France and that all the roads must be closed, that everything must be locked down. But in France, we can't do that. Quite honestly, I tell myself it is not worth organising a race to see all these months of effort ruined for the whims of spoiled children. Now, in beautifully um, read also, Ola, with real dramatic um, <laughs> well, interpretation. The thing, is, I, the thing is, I'm laughing, but this came um, before our um, horrific, fatal crash involving Gino Mater. And, and, and I just, I, I should, in mitigation, say that Baudron did um, qualify his words slightly in an interview with Spores of the following week and said that he was speaking in the heat of the moment essentially and maybe used the wrong language. Um, however, we also have the involvement in this race of Marion Clignier, who until recently at least was a member of the women's CPA. I looked just before recording this podcast and she's no longer listed on the Riders' Union as being involved. But certainly this is someone who traditionally has been supposed to speak on behalf of the riders and look out for riders' welfare and riders' safety um, involved in this race. Now, Baudron has said that the race will no longer continue because he simply cannot be expected to guarantee the safety of riders as if this is something that is completely outrageous. It was also pointed out in social media a few days later that those roads were indeed closed for a sportif, a mass participation amateur sportif. Now, Baudron has said that the closures for that aren't equivalent to what you would need for professional racing. But quite frankly, quite frankly, just BS all round, BS all round. There's nothing, there's nothing really that can be said in defence of anyone who's going to defend coaches driving towards speeding elite riders. I'm sorry. It's absolute insanity. It is. And what is crazy is it, it is as if he's never organised a bike race before. Because, you know, it, it's not about closing the roads all day you know we see it even with the women's tour it's you know you have these rolling closures and they and they work perfectly well you have the police going ahead all their motos they close off every single uh intersection that you know um makes a t-junction with the road they make sure way in advance that there are no parked cars already there are kind of restrictions on parking weeks ahead uh, and that's how it works. It, it's not about closing the roads um, all day. And and he would know that it's not about that. So it's just, it's, cra- you know, to 
the, the rider safety has got to be the number one priority. Yes, we want to see exciting racing. Yes, we want to see great courses. But if you can't guarantee the rider's safety, then the race can't happen. It's interesting because residents in the area uh, reported that actually the, the sportive that was taking place on the Sunday was very well publicised. Um, everybody knew that it was happening. Um, there were road closure signs everywhere saying you can't park here for the day on Sunday. But nobody had a clue that the Women's Tour of the Pyrenees was happening. Um, so, you know, everybody was just driving around and, and there just simply weren't enough motorbikes. So, um, yeah, it clearly was possible for the sportive, but it just wasn't possible for the women's race, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it is to organise a race, but if you can't get basic safety in order, I'm sorry, but that's just not good enough. And saying it's difficult to organise is, is not an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's difficult to organise because the number one priority must be the safety of the riders. And if you can't get that far, then you can't get any further. You simply can't. And so yeah. it's, you know, it's it's sad because the roads used for this race are absolutely incredible. You know, they're wonderful. And to be able to race up the Oticam, amazing. However, nothing, nothing is worth the safety of riders. And the fact that you have to say that out loud in itself is absolutely insane. And it's also just, unfortunately, a real throwback to an attitude towards women's racing. And, and, it, and it is a throwback because we don't tend to see it so much anymore. And Adam Hansen, who's done a wonderful job at the CPA, has said that this is the first incident of its kind that he's seen with women's racing. And so he has to deal with it in men's racing as well. You know, we're not trying to say that women's racing is generally seen to be below men's because it's not. But this, even what you're saying, Lizzie, about the residents not knowing that the women's race is happening, but they knew the sportif was happening. This is like when I went to the um, La Course by the Tour de France back in 2016, was it, I think, or 2017. And no one in the area knew anything about the women's race happening. And so, and then you get people saying, oh, there's nobody out supporting the race. There simply isn't an appetite for women's racing. It's because they didn't do the flyering. You know, they didn't do the leafleting, which they did for the men's, of course. And you just got to think, I'm sorry, but if you belong in 2016, 2017, which isn't that long ago, but it's a lifetime in women's racing, then you don't belong in 2023. So yes, it's sad that the race won't continue. Um, is it actually no it's not no it's not it's not it's sad that these roads can't be raced on in a safe environment safe conditions but it's not sad that the race can't continue because you didn't stage a proper one to begin with sorry it has to be that ruthless it has to be it's also complete rubbish to say that there are no other races you know that that's not possible in france yeah. we have so, there are so many great races in france i mean you know you've got you know like the likes of Pluet world tour race um, but then all of the National Cup races are all on closed roads as well. So I'm sorry, but it's just absolute crap. Well, Lizzie, shall we listen to, uh, you did an interview with uh, Claire Steeles, who was at the race um, and well, in fact crashed at the race. Um, so shall we hear from uh, your talk with her now? It is so great to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been, I can't remember the last time I saw you in person. It's definitely been a while. Well, the elephant in the room, which isn't really the elephant in the room because we're actually doing a podcast, so no, none of us can see each other. But you've been sporting a pretty decent black eye for the past week or so, which I understand was a result of crash at the Tour of the Pyrenees. Well, yeah. we've seen from the outside that the race had to be cancelled due to the lack of safety measures. But tell me about your experiences from the inside and what actually happened with your crash. What I will say is from my somewhat limited experience, racing in France isn't the same as, for example, racing in Spain. The road closures aren't quite as successful, perhaps. It's maybe the, the most diplomatic way of saying it. For me, I always expect a little bit of that sort of thing. But this was crazy. And in particular, I'm sure you've seen the footage, like the final circuit. And in fact, I was in the, the first group and one of the girls actually came up to me and was like, just so you know, 
it's chaos basically in the the final circuit with cars there swanee was there and she had called the the doctor and like you need to warn you need to tell them the final circuit we just came in and, and first of all it was just cars parked along the side of the road which is you know we've had so much of that anyway and it felt a bit like doing the team series like a team series race in the uk yeah where, where, the, where the roads aren't players yeah and you can't the white line and you're just racing on on half a road essentially it felt a little bit like that for most of the race and but then the final the final circuit was just oncoming traffic cars traveling in the same direction as you pedestrians and you know nothing closed yeah so we we finish and then turn to come back and there were cars coming towards us that the rest of the bunch like the, the chase groups coming it was just not what you would expect at all from a especially from a uci race and then the next day apparently it was going to be better but they neutralized the first 23 kilometers so my understanding of that was that they couldn't guarantee the the safety or the the road closures and then it was down to the riders to say if we felt safe or not you know in my interpretation of that as well as where do you draw the line like what what is if what isn't safe one in person's interpretation is different to someone else's and after the neutralized i think we i don't know maybe 5k later we went through a town and there was like a lorry on the side of the road and then a bus and like a tanker and, and these are little villages you know there's not much room as it is. We we stopped. A, a few riders were like, "Like, what are we doing? Like, we've said we're going to stop. What's the point in saying we're not? We're going to stop if it isn't safe if we're not doing something about it." And in my mind, we have to set a precedent. It's about what we will tolerate. It isn't about this individual race. It's about the respect for for us as individuals, for us as athletes. And, you know, we have to say we will not race, we will not tolerate these types of roads, road closures or lack of. Um, so we stopped and then the agreement was to ride neutralised climb and then race up the climb, which obviously then changes the whole dynamic of the race anyway, because everyone's arriving at the bottom of the climb together, with the exception of myself, because I didn't make it that far. The the point where I crashed, it wasn't directly caused by you know moving vehicle on the course, but there were cars parked all down the left-hand side of the road and cars that had been pushed over for the the rolling road closure. I mean, you know what it's like. There was a lot of tension in the bunch anyway. Everyone was nervous. It wasn't really neutralised because at this point we were less than 10k away from the bottom of the climb. You and I both know that the neutralised zone can be one of the most dangerous parts of the race. Yeah, exactly. And th- there must have been a touch of wheels just a little bit in front of me to the right. And then one girl just cut straight across me I mean it wasn't the best move from her but I also can completely understand why she moved in the way that she did and it just took out my front wheel and I flipped over the handlebars and landed on my face but I have to say I mean it could have been so much worse when I went to hospital in the ambulance they were like I think you've probably broken your nose and your eye socket and your jaw and I was like no liquid food no but came out of hospital no concussion, no fractures, no breaks. They just glued my nose back together. Yeah, it sounds like you were pretty fortunate given the circumstances then. And at least it sounds like, you know, it was a result of the, the situation, in, even if thankfully not going directly head on into a moving vehicle. Yeah, so I mean, then moving on to the Tour de Suisse, where it seems like it was kind of touch and go whether you might actually start due to the injuries from the Pyrenees. You'd say what you'd had what I say is the best result of your season so far. A very solid, solid seventh place in the ITT, backed up by good, good climbing form, leading to a sixth place overall. And on paper, it's your best ever result. But 
How do you feel about it? Do you feel the same way? I have to say, I, I do feel the same way. And I, I was really surprised. Well, I'll start. I, yeah, I wasn't really sure. Am I going to race? Do I want to race? It's so close to nationals. My face really hurts. <laughs> I've only been able to get in contact with him for like two days. Do I want to fly? And then I was flying back to New York and then I was flying to see Like There were so many reasons not to race, if you like. But obviously, I'm, I'm really happy that I did. I would say it's my best result on paper. And I felt really good physically, but maybe not mentally. Just coming back from a crash, you know what it's like the first time. So I was a bit like, Oh. Did the process of doing that race help you move through that mental barrier? Because I often think sometimes the best thing you can do is actually get back into the races. You know, sometimes yeah. you crash in a stage race, actually, you know, you feel so tight the day after, but just getting back on actually loosens the muscles up. But it's the same thing mentally. You feel tight mentally, you feel worried mentally. And just getting back into that situation where you you have to switch off, you're in a descent, you have to just go for it. That actually enables you to lose that fear and to get over that fear of the thing that happened before. Exactly that. And I'm so happy that I did go a race and I did go through it. And from the first stage to the last stage, I, mentally, I was like a completely different person. You know, that, that first stage was at, I'd say, short circuit, but it was quite windy, quite twisty, fast descent. And it was a bit of a like, oh, yeah, I'm back racing again. Wow. But yeah, by the last day, I, I felt not much better and was really surprised with the TT. Really surprised. Yeah, great. It was a great result. I mean, you've been steadily chipping away for a few years now, last three years with the Pella women's racing team. This year, you really seem to have made a huge step up, winning Revolta at the end of April, um, then on the podium in Durango, Durango. What is it that's made the difference this year? And I wonder if the impact of being on a world tour team and the salary that comes with that has that enabled you to focus purely on cycling and yeah, I mean, not do do a lot of your other stuff. Yeah. I mean, you're a personal trainer by trade. Um, yeah, what impact yeah. that actually had on you? You've completely nailed it with that. It just having the the financial support from a world tour team and the opportunity to focus on on training. If, if I'm honest, my training probably hasn't really changed. The, the thing that has changed is the resting. Before, when I was working as a personal trainer and as a coach, oh, I'm maybe running on five hours sleep. And that that was like the norm. And that that was fine. And, you know, that, that that's just life. But now having the rest, getting more sleep in a solid block through the night, but then also finishing training and sitting on the sofa and having a proper meal and relaxing physically and mentally rather than quickly come back in, inhale some food and then go and teach like a kettlebell class, go and do, do a PT session or film a workout for later. The biggest difference for me, it has been the opportunity to rest and recover without a doubt. Yeah, it's really good to hear that and hear that, you know, the impact of those minimum salaries being so high and actually meaning that you can live a, live properly as a as an athlete actually make the difference because it's been clear for some time that you've had the potential. Well, let's look ahead, shall we? We're going to look ahead to the second Grand Tour. I'm doing air quotations here uh, of the year, which is the Girodone. And before we get into talking about the race, which Lizzie... Uh, you're down to do. I, I hope we can say yeah. that. Yeah, not all teams have released their riders, but Lizzie is um, should be doing uh, the Giro Donate. But before we go any further, I do just want to uh, mention that questions are still hanging over whether the race uh, will happen or not. It's been as probably there always is actually with the Giro Rose or Giro Donne, um, kind of a lack of information about the race route, uh, and now it's come to light with kind of a little over a week to go that actually Starlight, who are the organisers um, this year of the race, are in 
financial difficulty and they've gone to the Italian Cycling Federation to ask for money because they're saying that they can't um, pay for the TV production, which is obviously a key part of being a women's world tour race is having uh, live television uh, production. Um, and uh, this hasn't been resolved yet. The Italian Cycling Federation um, have met them with a lot of resistance, partly because Starlight are also the outgoing organisers of the race, as RCS, who run the men's Euro, will be coming in next year. So there's a little bit more resistance to bailing them out and helping them um, this year, bearing in mind that they're not going to be around next year. Uh, but it is a bit of a catch-22 also because if they don't have the TV production or if the race doesn't go ahead, then effectively that means that they could lose their license for being a Women's World Tour race and that effectively makes RCS's contract to take over next year uh, null and void. So, you know, then if you, you don't have the race, then you won't have it next year. But then if you if the Italian Cycling Federation pay the money this year, then they're kind of bailing out an organisation who organization that aren't going to be uh, around next year. Anyway, so um, having spoken to a few teams, um, I've had very different reactions, actually. Some teams are like, we're delighted that the race is going ahead and we're looking forward to racing it. And other teams have been like, uh, I'm not going to say anything because I don't think this race is uh, happening. And, you know, we've told our riders not to uh, consider that they're doing it and uh, the rest. So we've had a real range of reactions um and uh but before well before we talk to our own well our own Giro stage race champion twice over thank you very much Lizzy Banks thanks for remembering that finally god how far <laughs> do we have to get into the Giro introduction until you remember I'm a two time stage winner race <laughs> but uh yeah before we talk to you so just to put that off even longer um let's hear from uh, some of the riders that will be taking part in the Giro Donate uh if it happens let's hear from them now Erica Magnaldi, UAE Team ADQ. Giro Rosa is uh, one of the hardest races in our season and it's maybe my favorite one. I love climbing and uh, I think the most challenging stages will be uh, the one close to where I live and this makes me even more excited to race. Um, I think as a team we have a good uh, possibility for uh, GC uh, result with me and Sylvia and for sure we will try to go for it. Uh, we also have uh, super strong uh, sprinters uh, but I think uh, everyone in the in the team we have can have a, a chance for a good result. Uh, there are many uh, stages that will be open for different scenarios and uh, we all trained super well, uh, we have been in altitude for it and uh, for sure we will be ready to, to do our best uh, in every stage. Soraya Paladin, Canyon Sram. Yeah, Giro is always a special race. As an Italian, it's nice to compete in the home country. We didn't have a lot of information shared so far, but it's nice, it's going to happen. And uh, from the mu from the rumors, seems a really interesting course. I personally expect some uh, exciting stage. And as a team, uh, for sure, we aim uh, for uh, the big results. We were uh, so many times uh, on the podium, but uh, we want more and uh, if we keep racing like uh, we are doing 
for sure the big win will come. So we are uh, looking to take uh, every opportunity and to have uh, an impact on every stage and to have fun and uh, enjoy Italy. Oshka Zygart, Jaco Alula. I hope to carry my shape there nicely and uh, yeah, with the team, uh, we'll see what uh, what uh, the goals are. I would really, really hope for for Anne to have some luck this year and uh, I'm sure she'll give it a go for the GC and uh, yeah, myself, I would be so happy if I could support her somewhere. Yeah, maybe if there's an opportunity to go for a stage and uh, yeah, and be a little bit aggressive, that's uh, that's also great. We'll see a little bit how the race goes, uh, also who comes there. Normally in these races, uh, yeah, the competition's really, really high, and uh, I think the whole team is really excited because, uh, yeah, we've been great as a team this year. We've uh, all been working towards uh, the goals together, and uh, yeah, it's really coming, coming to the surface now. It's showing, and uh, I think we're really close to a big, big result. And yeah, hopefully, we can make that happen in the Giro. So that was some of the riders that will be taken to the start line next week, if there is a start line to take to, I suppose. Stop. Stop with this negativity. No, sorry, sorry. I know, I, need, I know. I need this race. I need this race because I am putting it out there and I already did put it out there on this podcast that I want to make it to the Tour de France as part of my comeback. And I believe that I can and I'm strong enough, but I need these race days. And it is a desperate situation. Yesterday, actually, the... Um, the Italian Federation posted on on their own website uh, a number of the star riders who were taking to the start. So that, I think, is a good sign. Did you get a mention, Lizzie? I did not. Did you get a mention there? I not consider myself a star rider. And I also um, sent a message to Chiris Emilio asking him what he thought about the race. And he said that he thinks it will go ahead. So I think we're going to have positivity with the fact that it goes ahead because um, I need it. <laughs> <laughs> I need we're not going to mention it in. We're not going to mention it in a hypothetical way anymore. We're going to just talk about the racing that is happening, um, and how excited we are to watch exactly. you, Lizzie, return to the Giro. Lizzie, do you fancy this? Co- I thought when I looked at this course that I thought it, that it was a good one for you. Actually, that you would it, it reminded me a bit of you know your stage victories of past, kind of bumpy, but. Mm. Um, not not too not, mountainous, not big climby, and not too flat either. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a really exciting parkour. It's a parkour that could um, allow for really exciting racing and really dynamic racing on almost all of the stages. I think there's one stage that's just a nailed-on sprint stage. Um, but like you say, Rose, it's 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 consistently lumpy, and there's sort of interest in every single stage. So I think that. It, you know the the teams are the teams seem to be motivated for attacking racing. Everybody needs to get something out of the season because SD Works are the only ones who've won anything the whole year, um, and SD Works aren't going to be taking their absolute A team to the Giro. I've said that, but also Lorena Pibas will be going. I understand, um, but you know she's not going to win every stage. I don't think. So I think that the other teams will be very motivated to do what they can here um, and to attack wherever they can, knowing that in other races, you know, they're often suffocated. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, if I was in full fitness, which I'm very much not, I would be eyeing up 
many of the stages. I'm not going to tell you which ones, just oh. in case. Um, but but yeah, I think it's I think it's an exciting parkour. It's always rolling. Uh, there's always interest, and I hope that it will make for a very attacking race. Well, surely you're going to be targeting stage four because it's the longest. So surely you're going to go on a solo breakaway from like 120 kilometers to go. I mean, I don't mean to spoil the tactics or anything here, Lizzie, but I've watched your race at the Giordano before, you know? <laughs> well, Orla, you'll just have to watch it and see if you if you can watch it, which we're not sure if you can because we don't know if there'll be TV coverage when it goes ahead. But um, yeah, it's interesting because we're saying about it being lumpy and exciting, but that doesn't necessarily work for Anna McVell Fluton because obviously she'll be... She did the the Grand Tour triple uh, last year. She'll be, of course, looking to do it again this year, having already bagged the Vuelta Femenina. But all uh, when there's there's no big climbs, none of those huge alpine passes or huge um, climbs in the Dolomites, nothing like that. So where would is that okay for Anamik to? Will she can she still come out with pink at the end when there there aren't those? And there's not even a, like a long time. You know, the time trial is for. 4.4 kilometers or something you know and she also likes a long time trial what is just a lumpy course can Annemiek find the the winning it makes it a lot there. harder for her doesn't it but of course we say that as a three-time yeah. winner of this race and what we wouldn't usually say about Annemiek van Vleuten is it also depends on what riders will commit to this then given the proximity to the Tour de France fam if it was the toughest race with the best riders then you would expect Annemiek van Vleuten to be contesting the win. It's not the toughest race, so it'll depend on the other riders and what kind of ambitions they're coming into the race with. But it definitely makes it harder. It definitely makes it harder and and may then become a different kind of a race for her because you would imagine in her final year, the Tour de France fam is going to be her main target of these stage races. Obviously, she would love to win this for a fourth and final time, but she thrives when everyone else is on their knees. And if you don't have the chance to put that pressure and the stress and the exhaustion into the legs of the rivals, then it's just much harder for her to find that margin, you know, the winning advantage. She's been saying how she's really tried to, and I laugh saying this, transform herself into a stage racer over and above being a classics rider. And I'm laughing, obviously, because we've been watching Anamik. You've been, you've been a phenomenal stage racer for quite a while now. Um, but, you know, her targets have been stage races and not the classics. And we've seen how, how that's worked out for her so far this season. Um, it certainly makes it a lot more interesting for the rival teams. And, and I think it should mean that we get a much more aggressive kind of race because you're not waiting at Anamik to tighten the screws on any given climb you know and it means that it that it hopefully is going to be a more dynamic kind of racing all round you would think there's one summit finish on stage seven which is the only summit finish of the race um i would actually like to see from a viewer's perspective anime go on one of her sort of solo rampages i think stage five i'm just going to give some tactics away here but stage five has a, a big quite challenging climb at the beginning and it's similar to when I was racing in uh, 20, 2019, I think it was, the stage up to Lago de Cancano, which was actually won by Annemiek van Vleuten. It had a climb like this at the beginning of the day and absolutely, you know, hell broke loose right at the beginning. Um, the peloton was ripped to shreds. And it's the kind of thing that if you are a really strong rider like that, you can rip the peloton to shreds at the beginning of the day because only the strongest riders are going to be left. There's going to be no one there to chase. And you can kind of turn everything upside down by going on this 
you know, sort of 90 kilometer solo rampage. Um, so I'd, I'd love to see something like that from a viewer's perspective. I think that would be fascinating to watch um, and, you know, good to, good to see Annemiek back. But it's interesting because we've just yesterday had the the Dutch National Time Trial Championships, um, won convincingly by Rihanna Marcus. We don't know yet if Marcus will be at the Giro. We know that she will be at the Tour de France. Um, second place was Demi Vollering 55 seconds back. But I think it's important to add context to that because Demi Vollering came off the back of the Tour de Suisse. She had an overnight pretty much transfer in her camp van, slept in her camp van. And then um, the Dutch National Championships, Time Trial Championships was effectively stage five for her. Um, so I think that conceding that much time in those circumstances is actually pretty promising for her. But Van Vluten was 1.13 behind Rihanna Marcus. She said on her Instagram page that she was very happy with her ride. Um, but it, it seems unusual for us as viewers to see Annemiek losing that much time in a time trial. We know that Rihanna Marcus is in really good form, but um, yeah, it's almost it's almost concerning, I would say, as, as a viewer to see that. But I think, I mean, what we've always known about Annemiek van Vluten is, is that she goes her own path very much. I mean, she builds up her training that is specific very much to her. And we don't necessarily uh, see a lot of her in the races, um, but she always works out a way of of peaking um, at the right time. And, you know, she does these big training blocks at altitude. It's slightly different. But, I mean, we, we haven't seen perhaps the, uh, you know, the enemy of old this year, have we? We haven't seen the kind of imperious performances. We, we've seen her lose the wheel sometimes in some of the, the climbs. But then we, that all said, she did win the... Uh, Volta Femenina. So, um, you know, as much as we were saying that SD Works have won all and sundry this season, we're forgetting that actually uh, Annemiek won that, although she won that by not winning a stage. She actually won the overall without winning a stage there, didn't she? Uh, because Guy Riolini pipped her on that that one stage that she uh, was sure to win. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've only got this one category. There's only one category one climb in the whole uh, race, which is pretty remarkable for a Giro route, isn't it? Because we're traditionally used, well, we're used to the Giro being horribly disorganised, but usually um, it has some kind of, you know, sestriere in it. It has some kind of um, There's usually massive, one big uh, summit Zonkalan. Sure. Yeah, there's normally something absolutely huge. And, and in many ways, the Giro uh, was doing that way before any of the other races caught up um, in the women's side of the peloton, on the women's side of racing, uh, you know, they always had these huge, um, long, long climbs. But this is much more unusual uh, kind of route for the Giro. Uh, like you said, um, Lizzie, it's that stage five, which is also the one that Erica Magnaldi uh, referenced um, when she said the, the the stage near her home, which is stage five, which has the category one Paso del Lupo. Um, which is 16% in parts, average of 6.2%, 8.5 kilometres. It's not it's not huge though, is it? No, it's not huge, but it's steep enough and long enough in order to split things up. And the fact that it, it starts, the road starts rising 10 kilometres into the stage um, and the peak of the mountain comes 25 kilometres into a 104 kilometre stage means that it could cause absolute chaos. Uh, you've then got a long descent and it's then still rolling, you know, some sort of smaller climbs with two more climbs into the finish. So much smaller than the, the first climb. But if you, you can create a really big gap on, on a, 
you know, a mountain like that at the beginning of the stage. And um, depending on who's in there, you can you can hold it to the finish because nobody is sort of organised enough to chase behind. But, you know, I think the fact, Rose, that there aren't any high mountain finishes in this race is actually... Um, it's actually a benefit for the Giro because we do have a high mountain finish in the Tour de France. We obviously had, um, you know, some mountain finishes in the Vuelta and it's nice to see something different. It's nice to see a different format. We're going to see a different um, makeup of riders in this race as well. And I think it's good that the three different tours have different identities and have different things going for them. And I'm happy to see a different Giro to to what we've seen in the past because it's nice to change up the format and see something different from time to time. We don't want to just know what's going to happen before the race happens. And I think this this really, um, yeah, provokes that feeling of excitement and, you know, dynamic racing and not knowing what's going to happen. That's what I was going to say. I think if it, almost if the three, if the organisers of the three so-called grand tours of women cycling were looking at each other and trying to divvy up what each race should look like to provide variety you would think that this is the Giro that it should be obviously it doesn't work like that but it's really interesting because the Giro has always been traditionally the really mountainous really difficult race in the women's calendar and that's what it stands for you know that's its entire identity so it is really unusual that we don't have those huge summit finishes or huge climbs in the middle of all of this but like you, Lizzie, I'm glad of that. I'm glad of it because otherwise, what's the point of difference? You know, where does it differentiate itself really? And you don't want to have each of the Grand Tours competing with each other to be the most mountainous or the toughest or whatever it might be. You want to see the best racing. So even though it's probably not by design in relation to the other Grand Tours, I think as a cycling fan, it's a very good thing and it should it should provide an awful lot of drama for that reason. I also don't think that we need this rhetoric of, um, you know, the race isn't hard unless there's high mountain finishes. I think that this will be a very, very hard race. I think that everything about everything about the Giro Donne, Giro Rosa, whatever you want to call it, and Italy makes it hard. It's Italy in July. It's going to be absolutely scorching hot. The organisation is usually an absolute disaster, which then makes it harder for the riders because you just have no idea what's going on. Um, I have to fill in my my whereabouts for anti-doping. I have to do it three months in advance. Um, I message my director to say, do you know what the Giro hotels are so that I can fill in my whereabouts? Uh, and he literally sent me a voice message laughing at me saying, we didn't find out her hotels until the day before the race. Two of, two of the days we got to the hotels and uh, we had to actually go to a different hotel. One of the days it was actually 100 kilometers from where they'd arrived to. But all of this chaos around the race adds adds stress adds fatigue and it makes the race harder so we don't need high mountain finishes to make the race harder i mean look at the races in the ardennes they're incredibly hard races and there's no high mountains in them the race is hard by the design of the riders by the design of the parkour and i think this will be an incredibly hard race because the Girodonic and italy always has those ingredients to make it difficult I'm really excited and I, I need this race to go ahead. So if you are out there and you've got a bunch of cash, please, I don't know, maybe just don't send it to Italy. Maybe, to, I don't know. I, do, I need this race to happen. I really need this race to happen. I really want this race to happen. I love this race, even though it's always, um, <laughs> it's always a complete disaster. But it's all, but yeah, welcome to the Giro. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting point that you're saying about the hardness of the race, the difficulty of the race. And I think we almost need to qualify that going forward because we're so guilty of falling into this trap. And I feel like sometimes we allow the conversation to be led by Annemiek van Vleuten and how hard she sees a race being or not. And if she has said a race is hard, 
what we mean is it's incredibly mountainous and it's going to be very, very difficult for the rest of the peloton and easier for her to win. Or when she says a race isn't hard enough, we almost just parrot that when actually what we mean is it's not as mountainous as it could be, which makes it easier for her because it's harder for everyone else. But actually difficult, as you say, Lizzie, is everything, everything that we don't see as well when we're watching from home. It's the transfers, it's the mental exhaustion as well as the physical exhaustion. It's the difficulty of logistics. It's everything that can wear you down that makes it more difficult to compete on the bike. That's what makes a bike race so hard. And bike racing is always hard. It's racing. So I think we do need to qualify it ever so slightly. And I'm guilty of falling into this trap because it becomes an easy way of describing a race. Annemiek van Vluten says it's not hard enough when we say, oh, that's shorthand for, meaning it's not as mountainous as, as perhaps she would like it to be. However, it's still bloody hard and, and arguably maybe then harder, but just in an entirely different way. It's funny though, isn't it? Because even a few years ago, I remember, you know, we were kind of always desperate to have these longer mountain passes be included um, or always saying, you know, the, the the riders are up to it and, you know, we need to see more. And it kind of, when La Course uh, started bringing in that, the Izzard, the Cold, Cold Izzard, when they brought that in, uh, it was like, oh, thank goodness we're going to get to see some, you know, really hard racing. And obviously that was just an Annie <laughs> yeah, Gundry exactly. uh, time trial, wasn't it? To the Followed top, by the actual time uh, trial. Which wasn't so thrilling. Uh, but it feels like it goes in cycles, um, you know, and, and, you know, now we're kind of looking to to not have that decisive one mounter stage. You know, we're kind of looking to have a stage race to have a bit more variety. But, you know, as you both have said, we're getting that variety through the year, aren't we? Because we're, we're allowing each race to have its own identity. And therefore, you know, you get your big mountain pass, you can watch the Tour de France fam later in the year. Um, and if you want something maybe a bit more dynamic, a little bit more closely thought, then um, that's what the Giro Donne um, can offer. But looking ahead to the Tour de France fan, I, I should take this little juncture as a, a chance to introduce Denny Gray, or as Lizzie calls him, Denny! Denny. With jazz hands. Yeah, Denny. <laughs> Denny, well, I mean, he'll introduce himself, of course, but uh, I first met Denny back at the Raffa Lincoln Grand Prix uh, in 2022, and eyed him up as a potential talent for the cycling podcast. Um, and well, I'll let, I'll let Danny introduce himself because I'm very excited to see Danny work with Rose on the Tour de France fam later this year. We should just say to everyone who Danny uh, is before we even hear from him because uh, Denny's going to be uh, coming with us with the cycling podcast uh, Feminine or are we just the cycling podcast when we're on the road? I don't know, actually. That's a question for Lionel. But the Cycling Podcast Feminine, when we go to uh, the Tour de France fan, uh, me and Denny are going to be um, out there on the ground, mopping up the interviews, taking in the atmosphere and uh, bringing our lovely listeners uh, daily podcasts from the race. We we are sort of in a difficult position where we kind of want Lizzie Banks to join us too. I'm sure the listeners want Lizzie Banks to, to uh, join us for their listening listening pleasure but we also really want Lizzie to be out there bossing it uh, at the race itself. So that is um, to be decided. But yeah, Denny Gray, um, he's the man behind the British Continental, which be a website that people uh, may know. Um, it's all based around domestic racing um, and offers a real insight into the British peloton. Um, but yes, let's hear from him now. Well, first of all, Denny, welcome to the Cycling Podcast. 
Thank you, Rose. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm glad you've said that. Um, but just for the <laughs> listeners, um, well, you might not be saying that after you've done the Tour de France fam with me after, you know, a week on the road or whatever, but uh, we'll take that for now. But just for the listeners' um, information, tell us a little bit about you. You're, I mean, we know that you're the, the man behind the British Continental, but um, tell us how you kind of got started in, in cycling, because it's not actually your day job. I'm giving away all of what you're about to say, aren't I? So tell me about yeah, you, I don't Denny. Need to say anything now, do I, Rose? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I guess I probably remained pretty incognito when it comes to the cycling world. Um, I set up a little website called the British Continental in 2018, and the website focuses primarily on British racing scene. So the idea idea behind it is to shine a light on the kind of lesser told stories of British teams, riders, and races, both at home and abroad, and. That started off as a just a little side project, really, uh, alongside my day job, and it's quickly ballooned into something much bigger. We've had a little podcast at, uh, on and off uh, throughout the years, but the website. Don't mention that, thing. Denny. You're not allowed to mention that. No, I'm joking. No, sorry, sorry. <laughs> We're the only uh, podcast, aren't we? Surely. Of course, you are. We're completely inspired by the cycling podcast, which is the original and and best. Um, I should say, but um, so that's what I've been doing uh, around kind of cycle reporting, cycling reporting for the last five or so years. And um, because initially I set it up kind of on the quiet, I guess, alongside my day job, I didn't reveal, reveal my name for a long time. So it's not a name that people will be familiar with, I'm sure. And I recognize also we're fairly niche, you know, domestic uh, road racing, British road racing, isn't something that everybody follows. But, um, but yeah, that's that's a little bit of an introduction about me. Alongside that, I I'm a sustainability consultant, so I have a very uh, I guess different. Um, I spend my ways in, in very different times um, outside of the world of cycling. Now, you must have always loved cycling. Give us uh, a bit of an insight into you know your passion for cycling and how it all started for you. Yeah, I mean, I guess my first. Um, real glimpse of cycling was, I guess, like many people of my age, and I'll be giving away my age by saying this, but <laughs> watching the highlights of the Tour de France during the 80s on Channel 4 with the classic theme tune and being inspired by watching people like Greg LeMond and Bon Fignon and, and others uh, as they battled for the Tour de France glory. And that really sparked and ignited my interest in cycling. It seemed like a a massively exotic sport in those days, you know, hearing Phil Liggett's commentary coming over what seemed like the airwaves from millions of miles away, kind of glimpsing lands that I hadn't been to before, and the thrill of the kind of contest and the racing, the whole mixture just made me fall in love with the, the sport. And um, as soon as I was able to uh, afford it uh, uh, with my pay for arms money, I, you know, I would buy Cycling Weekly and uh, try and clean what I could about the world of cycling. So that's where it all started for me, really. Have you ever been to the Tour de France as a spectator? Only in the UK. Oh. Um, when it's come, when we've had the Grand Depart in, in London and it's been through kind of the South of England. I, unfortunately, I wasn't up there in Yorkshire, but I did see the stage which finished in London. So, yeah, I'm yet to uh, yet to witness uh, the Tour de France on, on kind of home soil, as it were. I've been to the Criterium de Dauphiné, um, but that's, uh, I understand that's a much, much kind of different beast uh, in terms of the, the setup and the publicity and the fans on the side of the road. So uh, this is going to be a, 
a new experience for me, not least because, of course, I'll be seeing it from an angle which I guess most most fans don't get to see it. And uh, what are you looking forward to most, apart from obviously having my wonderful company for a week, but what are you looking forward to most about being out at the Tour de France fan? Yeah, well, of course, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting to know you, Rose. Yes, um, of course. Uh, should, am I allowed to reveal to listeners that one of the uh, questions you asked me before... <laughs> oh no, I don't. I joined you was whether I was a psychopath. So, um... <laughs> I did. That that is true. That I mean, that is yeah. uh, you know that normally you know, what they call the psychopath test isn't normally just asking the person if they're a psychopath, but you know it's it's a key question if you're going to be <laughs> on the road with someone, isn't it? Yeah. I think you. I don't think you said no either, which is thinking back on it is kind of concerning. I think you said maybe you didn't think that you were. So, <laughs> I, to be honest, it's not, not a question I've ever had before, uh, and uh, I was a bit nonplussed. Um, but yes, no, I mean, obviously, you'll get to, you'll get to know the answer to that question uh, throughout the week. Uh, I'm definitely not, for the record. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm just really looking forward to being on the road um, and getting under the skin of the biggest bike race in the world. So it would be a new new experience for me, as I said. Uh, I'll, I'll be learning loads. Um, but also, you know, it would be a great cultural experience as well. Um, massive cheese fan. So that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I'll get a chance to uh, try try some of the local uh, cheeses. Um, uh, Cantal is uh, is a good one, I think, on the, on the stage start on the opening stage. But um, on a sporting level, I think the course looks really exciting. It's a really balanced course. The GC battle will probably be pretty suspenseful, given that we don't really have a kind of meaningful mountain stage until stage seven, and then the time trial on the final stage. So. I think it should be a really interesting sporting contest and, you know, I guess the key, key question for me and, and for many people will be, you know, can Van Vluten kind of reprise her, her win? You know, how will Demi Vollering be? Um, what, will she continue her an amazing form? Um, so I think there are, there are, you know, hundreds of tales to tell on there and, and mm. stories to follow. So um, from a sporting side, it should be a, an amazing spectacle too. Well, you've teed it up absolutely perfectly, Denny. So thank you for that. You made my job very easy. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it, Rose. And I'm really looking forward to uh, to joining you uh, in about a month's time. I guess well, by the time this recording goes out, it'll be less than that, won't it? But anyway, uh, soon. Yeah, we better book those. Uh, our, book our travel out. That's a, a key reminder for me to do that. <laughs> that would be handy. Yeah. So that was a little intro to uh, Denny, who will be you'll be hearing a lot from. We've got uh, an, a a revay that will be coming out about the uh, Giro Donne, um, which Lizzie will be racing, which we're excited. To, will you be on our Arrive, Lizzie? I guess you can't can't be, oh, can you? I might give you an interview if you ask nicely. An exclusive. Oh, I'll speak okay. to your agent. I'll try. I, I won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I won't. You. I won't burn that match here. Maybe I'll. Maybe I'll save my uh, Lizzie soundbites for the Tour de France fans, so you don't well, get sick of me actually, bothering Actually, Rose, I should mention that I'll be doing a Giro diary as I did in 2019 and 2020. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you will be oh, able to go back and listen to those again if you want to hear about uh, the wonders of the Giro organisation. Um, we'll try and put the links in the show notes. 
One of them is on the Friends of the but Podcast. But also, Lizzie, a stage win in each of those, wasn't there? A yes. stage win in 2019, stage win in 2020. So it's a good omen to be doing the diary. Oh, it, is, it is a good omen. Um, but yeah, so I'll be doing the diary. That will be available on the Friends of the Podcast feed at some point after the Giro. Um, so you will be able to hear plenty from me about how the Giro has gone in due course. Perfect. And then we're also going to have uh, me, Denny and you, Lizzie, are going to get together for a kilometre zero preview of the Tour de France fam that will be going out uh, during the men's Tour de France. Blah. So that was, yes, wow, a lot of podcasts uh, to come. But um, we actually, Orla, we won't be podcasting with you until uh, August because you'll be so busy yourself doing the men's Tour de France. And then the women's as well, obviously, yeah. It's and a in the solid yeah. four and a bit week block of Tour de France for me, which makes me excited and terrified and very anxious, all in equal measure. <laughs> but yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. This is the part of the year that I look forward to the most, but then also that sort of hangs over you, you know, and that's not even as a rider, but um, I can't wait. I can't wait. I just want to be in it. Once you're in it, it's great fun. And you're going with the flow. It's the prep. It's the anxiety of getting ready to go away from home for, well, it'll be six weeks this time and um, with the world's off the back of it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm I'm going to keep talking so that I talk myself back into enjoying it because when I say that stuff out loud, it makes me feel very nervous. Well, if there's any consolation, we're all very excited to have you Aww. in our living rooms uh, every you. day. So. Um, if that's any consolation to I would, all the well, other stuff. I'd much rather said that than, oh God, I'm going to have to turn off the telly every day. You know, yeah. of the two options, I'll take it. I'll try and find the one which doesn't include the live show. <laughs> Desperately trying to find it on GCN Player. Um, but yes, we'll miss you uh, all. But obviously we'll be uh, in touch with you. I'll be you, listening. Um, plenty. And uh, I, I can't wait to hear all your perspective uh, on the racing uh, on the TV anyway. And uh, Lizzie, well, this is our time to wish you the best of luck with the Giro Donne. Do it for the Thank podcast. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and just to bring this podcast full circle, I would like to mention that Flirty Mackay's lovely Labradoodle is actually also called Bella. I, I thought that when we were talking about your Bella at the beginning of the podcast, Orla, but I just had to fact check it. Um, and she's also a yeah, Labradoodle. I met Bella. She's a Labradoodle, yeah. Oh, how wonderful. Wow. So, Lab. Bella Labradoodles of the Peloton is uh, <laughs> that's the spin-off a of the spin-off. To you very soon. <laughs> yeah, we'll try and squeeze that in between the Rive and the Kilometre Zero. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, maybe we'll find that we don't have time for that. I don't know. Um, but anyway, thank you uh, both of you for uh, joining me, and uh, look forward to podcasting with you soon. Both thank you both. You. Can't wait to listen and watch. Thank you, Rose. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.